Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let's stand for our sermon text. This is the word of the Lord. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. I'll stop there. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would feed us, that you would warn us from heaven, that you would give us hearts that receive your word and trust it and believe in it, and that you would work in us. Father, continue the work that you have started in our sanctification. Lord, may we put to death the deeds of the body. May we take thoughts captive in obedience to Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So the portion of the Apostle Peter's second letter that we looked at last time made the point that the prophets did not speak and write cleverly devised tales, but that they spoke from God as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. The words of the prophets, as with the words of the apostles, are inspired. They are breathed out by God. Only those who have been born again by that same Spirit have have the proper illumination of the mind to understand and receive that important truth, that the Word of God is inspired. As with many things in this life, with the truth, there is often a counterfeit that tries to draw in followers. Counterfeits. Counterfeits that look similar but are way different. There are prophets who spoke from God, and there are false prophets whose words are their own, and they rise rise from a fallen and depraved mind, not by the Spirit carrying them along. It is those false prophets, these false teachers, that the Apostle Peter now turns to in chapter 2, and his words are a warning. His words are a warning. He's, he's being a watchman, right? The Apostle Peter is being a watchman described uh, to us in Ezekiel 33. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon a land and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, 
And he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows on the trumpet and warns the people. Then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them. He is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. And so the apostle Peter is being that watchman, warning us even today of false teachers. It should go without saying that we need warnings, right? It should go without saying. But, but in a therapeutic age, in an age marked by, by great fear, warnings are deemed to be uh, unhelpful. We would rather only receive positive feedback, right? And only be about the business of, of building one another up. We consider warnings to be too, way too parental, right? We, we feel belittled by warnings often. We consider warnings to be scary and we'd rather just keep things positive. It's interesting how even our language changes so that we can avoid warnings, avoid negatives. Take, for example, the arguments we're having about homosexuality in the church today. Instead of referring to homosexuality as sodomy, we speak of same-sex attraction. And in so doing, we lose the warning of the word sodomy. And that word, if you know Scripture, if you know the Bible, reminds us of God's wrath against the city of Sodom and against the Sodomites. Sodomy has, the word sodomy has an odor of fire and brimstone. Same-sex attraction takes the violence out of homosexuality and couches it in a very positive concept of just attraction. Who, who would ever be opposed to attraction and attractiveness? We, we are a people who would rather be ignorant than we would be warned. Right? We would rather be blissfully happy than ready and armed. We would rather have a minute of peace rather than days of concerted vigilance and preparation. But Scripture is filled with warnings. I mean, it is warning from beginning to end. It's warning on every page. It's warning on every quarter page. Right? Our Savior preached warnings continually, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's Jesus giving warnings. In fact, God is always about the business of warning. That was the purpose of the prophets. That was the purpose of the apostles. That was the purpose of the Son of God himself taking on the flesh. They were sent by God to warn us, to warn the inhabitants of the earth about the wrath to come. Hebrews 12 says it this way, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. 
For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Warnings. Constant warnings. I mean, think about it. What kind of parent would you be if you never warned your children? What kind of parent? That's hot. Don't touch that. Right? The road, <laughs> the road is busy. Stay far from it. Set, you know, whatever. Set your mirrors before you drive. Right? Don't drink that. Feminism is evil. Right? If you give yourself to sin, beware, God may give you over to your, your sin. Don't touch. If you left warnings out of your parental actions, you'd be a terrible parent. And your child would be open up to all kinds of danger. Right? Your child would be open up to all kinds of danger. Now, now you can helicopter, you can take this to an extreme, you can, you can wrap your child in a bubble. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? That's not at all what I'm talking about. Scriptures are filled with glorious promises, comforting words, sweet meditations, but it is also filled with constant, heavy, powerful warnings. And without them, we would be ignorantly open to so many dangers. The warning specifically from the apostle is this, there have been false prophets and there will be false teachers among you today. What they do is this, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. That's what they will do. A heresy is that which, if you believe it, you have denied the faith. That's what a heresy is, okay? It, it makes you leave the reservation. It puts you outside the kingdom. You cannot be a Christian and a heretic. It's impossible. The heretic, as the text says, denies Jesus, the master who theoretically bought them. Heretics through the ages have tried to sneak their unbiblical doctrine into the church. Always sneaky, always subtle, always crafty, like, like the serpent was crafty. Arius was a, was a heretic during the 4th century. He was condemned as a heretic by the church in the Council of Nicaea, he taught that Jesus, though he was in some sense the Son of God, he was not eternal nor divine. He said there was a time when Jesus was not, and you know what? He, he was winning the day. He was winning the church. He was, he was the Tim Keller of the fourth century. It was the work of Athanasius and the Council of Nicaea that put this destructive heresy down. So much of the world had gone after Arius' um, Arius's false teaching that when Athanasius opposed his teaching, it was said that he was acting contramundum, that he was acting against the whole world. He was against the entire church, or so it seemed. Now this her heresy, denying the eternality and divinity of the Son of God, has arisen time and time and time and time again through the 
uh, two millennia of the church. Faithful teachers have had to warn the sheep continually about that same heresy. Another early heretic was a man named Marcion. Have you heard of Marcion? He, he lived in the early part of the second century, so we're getting close to the apostles. Right? He taught that the God of the Old Testament was not the same God presented in the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament was one God, the God of the New Testament was another God, and the God of the New Testament was to be preferred because he was kinder and gentler than the God of the Old Testament. Now, as you know, this heresy has cropped up time and time again in the history of the church. Today, it would, it would not take us too long to find so-called Christians who denounce the Old Testament and strictly adhere to the New. They are burning the same fuel that Marcion burned. The church condemned Marcion as a heretic and announced his teaching to be heresy in 144. We could go on, we could talk about Donatists, we could talk about Sibelians, we could talk about Nestorians, we could talk about Pelagians, we could talk about the Gnostics, we could talk about the mass indulgences, transubstantiationists, we could talk about theological feminists, we could talk about Judaizers, and on and on and on and on would go the list of, of heretics. The warning of the Holy Spirit in this letter will never be untimely. It's never going to be untimely because we're always going to have to face the subtle the subtle misdirections of heretics. There will be new heresies to oppose until our Lord returns and all the heretics are cast into the outer darkness. Here, though, is an important point and the thrust, I think, of the apostles' warning in 2 Peter 2. Notice what it says about heretics. It says they follow their sensuality. They follow their sensuality. And dropping down to verse 3, in their greed, they exploit you. What, we think that, that heresy is an intellectual mistake. We think that it's an intellectual or a theological or a category mistake of some kind. We think that heretics are just misunderstood scholars. We have a tendency to want to cut them some slack because, after all, intellectual freedom is necessary for progress, isn't it? But it would be a tragic mistake to view heresy as an honest error. That is never the case. It is not an honest error. Heresy and promoting heresy is the fruit of sensuality and greed. Sensuality and greed. Heretics, in other words, are always motivated by sex and money. Sex and money, that is what the Apostle Peter is teaching us here. They are motivated to do their work of rejiggering theology because they want to justify their sinfulness. And because that often means tapping into the popular views of the day, that work pays well. It pays very well. Think of the revoice movement in the denomination we left. Revoice has as its goal to carve out a protected space for homosexual orientation. They have been unclear in their teaching because they, they are having to overturn some 
long-held teachings of the Christian church. They have taught that attraction between a man and a man or a woman and a woman can be merely aesthetic and therefore not sinful. They have also attempted to chip away at the Reformed doctrine of concupiscence, which is a fancy way of saying that desires for sin are sin. To desire sin is to sin, says, say, you know, theologians like John Owen. The revoice voicers would like more space there and say, even though they do have sinful sexual attractions, not all of those attractions are sinful. They are, as some have argued, God-given. This is heresy. This is heresy. But think about it in the light of the point I just made about heresy being birthed not by intellectual error, but by sensuality and greed. Right? The revoice movement is straddling the scripture and the world, and they want to be able, on some level, to affirm homosexuality, even while allowing scripture to regulate it to a certain extent. Right? No copulation. This plays in Peoria, brothers and sisters. This plays in Peoria. Pastors, presbyteries, churches who have long been embarrassed by the Bible's clarity on homosexuality now have a sophisticated teaching that allows them to affirm people's sinful desires. And how does greed play into that? Well, just look at who evangelical publishing houses are giving their book contracts to and who is, who is being hired at colleges and seminaries and who is getting contracts to speak on the conference circuit. Right? There is money to be made in this. There's money to be made in heresy. There's money to be made in this revoice heresy. And big donors always have a vested interest in these projects. I, I suspect that heresy has always had its payoffs. Heresy through the ages has always had its payoffs. Yes, some danger that you might be tried and convicted, but it is terribly hard to tell the flesh no, isn't it? And heresy allows you to not have to do that. Here's the fact of the matter. We are all in danger of becoming heretics. Not because we're we're thinking thoughts that others haven't thought before. We are in danger of becoming heretics because we love our sin. We love our sin and we would rather swim with the cultural current than against the cultural currents. I mean, think about it. Your flesh and your mind begin whispering to you um, how pornography, you know, there's a sense in which it's a societal good. It, it's a free speech issue, you know. It's an outlet that keeps certain kinds of men from violence. You know, there's good that comes from pornography. And why would your mind and your flesh begin to whisper those things to you? Because of your own sensuality. Because you want a justification for your sin. We do this. We all do this, brothers and sisters. There's a book by a journalist named Paul Johnson entitled Intellectuals. He gives, he gives biographies of people like 
Tolstoy and Marx and Hemingway and Sartre. And, and after looking at their lives and their philosophies, he concludes that virtually all of these men loved humanity but could not love any actual people close to them. You know, all they did was for humanity and for love of humanity, but they, they couldn't love their wives. In other words, there was a disconnect between what they believed and how they lived. Right? There was that intense disconnect between what they believed and how they lived. With Christian heretics, I think it's actually much different than that. When it comes to theology and religious thinking, there cannot be a disconnect between what one believes and what one lives. Because the whole point of religion is to live out the faith. Right? So Christian heretics manipulate what they teach in order to make it fit how they want to live. The average pagan is, in a sense, more intellectually honest than the Christian heretic. He writes what he believes, then is willing to contradict himself locally to serve all of humanity. He'll contradict himself with reckless abandon. Christian heretics, as this passage teaches, are more base. They will lose intellectual honesty in order to construct a justification for their bad behavior. Then they call their bad behavior righteousness. It's all very twisted. There's more honesty in the pagan, the pagan hypocrisy than there is in the Christian heretics manipulating of truth to justify bad behavior. Here's another example of what I'm talking about, a more theological example. There are debates going on today in the high towers of theology about the Trinity. On one side are those who want to emphasize the absolute equality of the three persons of the Trinity. That's orthodox. Right? That's orthodox. As our confession teaches, the three persons of the Trinity are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Right? What one does, they all do, etc., etc. But in emphasizing the equality of the three persons, this group of theologians refuses to see anything other than absolute equality. Absolute almost interchangeability. But the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and the Spirit is not the Son or the Father. Right? Those who want to speak of the absolute equality of the three will not allow there to be any order within the Trinity, and they, in a sense, make the three interchangeable. There is no reason why the Father sent, the Son went, and the Spirit followed. It's just It's arbitrary. On the other side of the debate are those who say, no, the Son has always been the Son. The Father has always been the Father. The Spirit has always been the Spirit, and they've all related to one another because of those things. And it is only the Son who could have taken on the flesh. And His Sonship is something that has always lodged within the Trinity's ontology. Right? There has never been a time when He was not the Son and He was not glorifying His Father because His Father was the Father. Now stop and think. 
Stop and think for a moment. Why would a modern man want to deny order, deny eternal sonship, deny the begottenness of the Son? Well, because he abhors the idea that Scripture says a woman is the glory of man and a woman is not to exercise authority over a man. And you're saying, wait, I thought we were talking about the Trinity. In abhorring the idea of order within marriage and society, he searches for a theology to undermine what is so obvious in both Scripture and nature, emphasizing the absolute equality of the three persons in the Trinity to the exclusion of defining how they have always been three and how they have always related to one another as Father, Son, and Spirit. Well, that is helpful in them keeping their wives happy and affirmed and absolutely co-equal in every respect. Not just in respect of salvation, but in respect of role in the home. Gilbert Bilizekian, retired Wheaton professor of theology, was a long-time advocate for women's ordination in egalitarianism in marriage. He started a ministry called Christians for Biblical Equality, that had as its purpose to promulgate the sort of teaching that plays well today, that men and women are interchangeable and there is no order in marriage and father rule is bad. Well, guess what? Earlier this year, it was revealed in the pages of Christianity Today that he was sexually abusive toward women, touching women inappropriately, pressuring them to have sexual relationships with him. And you want me to think that that behavior and his intellectual life are not related. That's crazy. That is absolutely crazy. Scripture does not allow that kind of separation. Right? Bill Ezekian was an advocate of doctrine that flew in the face of Scripture, but was affirming to certain kinds of women because, and he needed to do that because he needed to be the hero of women so that he could seduce those women who thought of him as a hero. This is the twistedness of sin. His theology was a product of his sensuality. It's all very sad because it's all very destructive. None of us are immune to this kind of behavior. We are all in danger of becoming heretics because we love our sins more than we love God's word and his will and his law. This is why heresy sells. This is why we buy heresy. It justifies our sins and gives us a purported theological rationale for bad behavior. I mean, I could take hands and you could share and we could probably go for the next hour of, and give examples of this. Give exa specific examples of how this is played out. Calvin, in his very transparent way, says this, for hardly one, and this is, Cal Calvin is, is always like a bucket of cold water on me. And it's like, it rouses me awake and I'm like, okay, he's, he's right. He says, for hardly one in ten of those who have once made a profession of faith retains the purity of faith to the end. That is not a statement that any evangelical today would make, right? We just, 
hardly one in ten actually believes and then perseveres to the end. Almost all turn aside into corruptions and being deluded by the teachers of licentiousness, they become profane. Lest this should make our faith to falter, Peter comes to our help and in due time foretells that this very thing would be. That is, that false teachers would draw many to hell. He's like one in ten. He's like nine in ten get dragged away by false teachers to hell. I mean, those are shocking words for people who like to think of ourselves very highly. But we, we have to heed Scripture's warnings. We must be very careful and circumspect. We must remember that Scripture says, many will follow the sensuality of heretics, and we pray to God that He would make us faithful. Pray to God that we would not be entrapped by the foolishness of heretics, which is so tasty looking. Now, you may not like me saying all of this. You may think, no, no, no one thinks this way. No Trinitarian theologian is in it because he wants to go home at the end of the day and affirm his wife's headship. But dear brothers and sisters, this is what this passage is teaching us. Heretics do heresy because of their sensuality. They do it as a defense of their preferences, especially if those preferences are condemned by Scripture. Heretics work hard to give a theological justification, get this, for their fetishes. Heretics see the fruit of the forbidden tree is desirable and build a theological ladder to reach up into the tree to pick that fruit. We know many will do anything to make some money. I mean, that's the easy part of this, the greed part. People will do anything to make some money. And the, that, that impetus for heresy is very simple. What we do not often want to acknowledge is that heresy is an intentional error for the purpose of justifying sinful behavior. Your love for your sin will attempt to make you a heretic every day. Your love for your sin is going to be pushing you toward heresy every day. In a show of loyalty to our flesh, we are tempted even now to reject God's word, and so what to do? Well, know your temptations. Hate your sins, dear brothers and sisters. That's the path to resisting heresy. Hate your sins. Know God's will. Know what purity is. And that's the path to resisting heresy. Find joy in the fact that the will of the one true living God, the God who spoke into existence the Milky Way, has told you in his word and by his son how you are to be saved. And know this also. Heretics are in a terrible position. Those who lead people away from Christ are seen by God. They think that in their false teaching they are quite the blessing to themselves and others, but as it says in verse 1, they are bringing swift destruction upon themselves. In verse 3, 
their judgment is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. They are moving very swiftly toward their reward, which is destruction. They may have their accolades now, but they will know God's unmitigated wrath eternally. Always being destroyed and never being destroyed. The Pharisees were heretics. They made followers who were twice the sons of hell than themselves. They caused many to stumble. And remember this scene with Jesus. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but... Whoever causes one of these little children who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to, be, to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Brothers and sisters, heretics are busy recruiting you today. False teachers are going to try to tap into your temptations and supply you with what your flesh wants. Resist them. Resist them firm in your faith. Do not depart from the gospel that you have learned. You are, all of you are immortal souls who will receive an imperishable body. I do not want any of you to spend eternity in hell clinging to a false gospel. Believe in Christ, risen from the dead. Live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Reject anything, anything that is dissonant with it. Live the remainder of your days putting to death the deeds of the body and glorifying your Father in heaven. If not, your sin is all that you will ever have. And you'll be the kind of fool who will believe anything if it just makes him feel good. 